Well, since we were so recently back from Easter vacation, I've been thinking a lot about Easter memories. And I have to say that while I love uh, memories of my cousins and my family sitting around the table and eating dinner, uh, the one thing I've always hated about Easter, even since I was a child, was Easter egg hunts. And that's because I have never been able to find eggs. And as embarrassing as it is, I was the kid that you'd hear the, my mom yelling, don't touch those, those are for your sister, like laying on the grass in plain sight. I've just always been terrible at Easter egg hunts, and so I never really loved getting into it. And when my sister was little, uh, I was a teenager, so I was relieved that she had to hunt for eggs alone. And then my mom and dad came up with a plan to get my teenage brother and myself involved in this Easter egg hunt, so we called it the Big Kid Easter Egg Hunt. And they put movie tickets and dollar bills and quarters in with the candy, and so my brother would bring his friends home from high school, and I would come home from college, and we would all hunt for these eggs together. And over the years, it kind of steamrolled, where people found out about our big kid Easter egg hunt, and they wanted in. So they would contribute, and eventually a golden egg was found. Uh, $200 would be in this egg. And if you are 16, 17, 25 years old and have a child like I did, I remember handing off Allie to my mom so I could run and look for this egg. Uh, it was a pretty big deal, and it was intense. I mean, there was one year a bloody nose, a broken toe. It was, it was like the excitement of this thing should have probably made me love Easter eggs hunts again, but the reality was it's uh, the worst case possible because as I grew older, I actually grew less talented at finding Easter egg hunts, and so the reality of the situation is what would happen is all the boys would run down the steep hill we lived on up in the mountains to go find these eggs, and I knew my place. I went to the front yard with my eight-year-old sister and looked for the easy ones. And it's funny because even then, it was remarkably pitiful. I could still hear my mom calling out behind me, warmer, warmer. <laughs> I, I just couldn't see them. And I think one year I found three eggs and all of them, ironically, only had candy in them. And my sister made like $15. But, you know, all of that to say, I just couldn't see what was right in front of me. I couldn't see what was hidden right in plain sight. Didn't matter what clues I had, didn't matter what color those eggs were, I just couldn't see it. And as I was studying our passage over Easter break, I couldn't help but wonder if this is exactly what the Israelites were doing, looking at something that was just hidden in plain sight, something they just couldn't see. We know that God made a covenant with his people. He miraculously led them out of slavery, and even more than that, he's made a covenant with them. He said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he promised that he was going to dwell in their midst. So Moses was given the responsibility, the task, to build Yahweh a tent, a tent. And it was beautiful. It was ornately designed. Every last detail was to be done exactly to the specifications that God set up. He was the one who made this design for the tent. From the very, very beginning, it was God who had a plan for our redemption, something maybe hidden in plain sight in the Old Testament, but truly woven through every page of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's always been God's plan to save his people and to dwell with them. Proverbs 25.2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search it out. That is... That is what we get to do today. That's the privilege we have, is to look at this text and search out the treasures that were hidden there by Yahweh himself 
the things that he wanted us to know and clearly see and understand about this plan of redemption that he had planned from eternity past always. And this is important because this is going to change the way that we see Christ. So it's important that we see it too. Every item, every single piece of furniture, everything we see in the tabernacle was, was specifically made, not just to help them do the duties of worship in the tabernacle, but also for more. And while it's important that we understand the furniture, the furniture that was in the tabernacle, it's so much more important that we see what each item, which each piece was meant to show us, that we see it for what it really is, a symbol of all the good things that was, were to come. Let's write it this way for our first point. We need to make sure that we see the symbols hidden in the tabernacle. See the symbols hidden in the tabernacle. Well, as we remember, Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights with God on Mount Sinai. And it was there that God gave him the law, and it was there that God gave him the specific instructions, the how-to for making his tent. This might actually seem a little like deja vu as we read this passage, which we will be studying this week, Exodus 37 through 39, because we've already seen these details earlier. He gave the complete set of instructions to Moses to make his tent. And of course, we know that when Moses was done, he came down the mountain, and that's when he saw the sin of the people worshiping this golden calf they had made in his absence. And so all of this, their sin, really pressed pause on the start date for the tabernacle, because God in the next few chapters was going to have to deal with his people's sin and again renew that covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. So really, we don't see the work start until chapter 36. That's when the tent was created, and by the end of chapter 36, the tent itself is done. It's ready to go, but it's empty, and it's ready to be filled. And that is where we see our passage, starting in chapter 37, verse 1, ready to be filled. We're going to look at this a little bit differently than um, maybe we normally do. We're going to look at Exodus chapters 37 through 39, but instead of reading it, we're going to take a really broad, bird's-eye view of it, just an overview of the whole thing. And what I want us to do is really highlight the pieces that were in the tabernacle and look at what they were meant to show us, see what we can learn from them. So as we see in chapter 37, starting in verse 1, the first item that was put into God's tent, this tabernacle, was the Ark of the Covenant. This tent had two rooms. The back room, if you will, was called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And then the front room was called the Holy Place. It was the back room, this holy, most holy place, the Holy of Holies, is where we would find the ark situated. The ark was a box made of wood, covered in gold, that had um, things inside of it meant to help the Israelites remember who God was. And on top of this box was a mercy seat with two angels, cherubims, with their wings spread out over it. It was meant to symbolize the thing that would be the place where God would reveal his presence. If you can think of it this way, it might help. It's like the tabernacle itself was the tent, and the ark, that was his throne. That's where he would literally be with them, dwell with them, speak to Moses. That's where his presence would be. In chapter 37, verse 10, we see that not only was the ark made and put into the most holy place, but that second room, the holy place, also needed to be filled. While the ark stood alone in the holy of holies, 
the secondary room, the most holy place, would have a few items as well. And we see that the next item to be put into that room was the table for the bread of the presence. The table for the bread of the presence had a much more common purpose. This would be the place where the priests would uh, lay out all their utensils they needed, their bowls, their spoons, all the things they needed to actually do the work in the temple were to be set on this table. But in addition to that, the priests also were, or were told to make 12 loaves of bread every week and set them on this table in two rows. And these loaves of bread were to sit there. No one was going to eat them, but they were to be a reminder. They were going to be the reminder that God was the one who would provide for his people. In a very real sense, looking at this bread should remind them that God will sustain everything I need for my life. And they would understand this because they were eating manna, literally bread raining down from heaven for them. This was to remind them that God would give them everything they needed and they could trust him. Well, after the table was done, they also put another item in. Bezalel made a lampstand, a lampstand of pure gold. And we see in chapter 37, verse 17, he says, he made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were one piece with it. And I don't know about you, but I had no idea, not still entirely sure I know what a calyx is or what this thing looked like, um, which is why I'm so grateful that in our homework packets, we have pictures of all of these items in the appendix. It's pretty cool to look at them and see the ornate design of every item that God wanted to be in his lampstand was that light would always be burning in the holy place, always. Just like there would always be bread on the table, there would always be light in God's house. It was meant to signify that he was there, that his presence was there with them, and they would always be able to see it. And in a very practical sense, if this light wasn't in the holy place, it would be impossible for the priests to do the work that God had assigned them to do. They couldn't obey, they couldn't fulfill the work that needed to be done if they couldn't see what they were doing. This light was a provision from God to remind them that he was with them and to remind them that he was the reason they would be able to do what pleased him. Now, there were more items inside the tent, we know that, but I want to just really focus on these ones that we've mentioned so far. And we know that once the tent was filled, then Bezalel moved out into the courtyard and started filling the courtyard as well. And the centerpiece of the courtyard was the altar, the altar that was covered in bronze, the altar for the burnt offering. We see that in chapter 38. This is where he describes the altar, what it would have looked like, the basin next to it. This would be the place where all of the sacrificial animals would be slaughtered to atone for sin. And this is hugely important because we know that in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22, that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of sin. It can't happen. So this was the means that God had set up for his people to make atonement for their sin and have a relationship, come near to his presence. This would have been a bloody, messy, awful thing to look at. You just picture blood running down the sides of the bronze on this altar, watching an animal be slaughtered in front of you and then burned. And at first, I'm sure it was hard for the people of Israel to even look at it. It, was, it must have been awful. And while we think of it maybe a little differently because we've never seen this happen, 
for them, it would have been a very, very important thing to get, to understand. They would have looked at that animal bleeding and dying and think, my sin did that. That's what my sin did. And sometimes I wish we had that same kind of realization when we think about our own sin. But God planned it on purpose that the Israelites would look at this altar, look what was happening, and feel the weight of their sin. This had to happen so they could even approach God. Well, we know that eventually the tabernacle was finished, inside and out, and everything was done. And Moses was so glad the people actually did the work exactly as they were commanded. In fact, it almost feels a little like deja vu when you're reading the book of Exodus because the details are exactly the same as the how-to that God gave them just a few chapters earlier. Look at verses 42 and 43 of chapter 8. It says, According to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As Yahweh had commanded, they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Ultimately, Moses was responsible for getting this work done. He was responsible to make this tabernacle happen. He was one who pushed them, who organized them, who made it happen. And we know that's because he saw something greater. He knew the tabernacle itself would be the means by which his people would have a relationship with God, but he also knew it was more. In Deuteronomy 18, we see that Moses told Israel plainly that one day after him would be a prophet that would come who was better than him, who was greater. They should listen to him. They should look for him. Someone better than Moses was coming. All of this was always meant to point to him. Hebrews 3.5 says this. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Why? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Ladies, I'm sure that Moses would have longed to see our day today. He looked forward to all the good things that he knew that God was going to do, even though he didn't quite see it clearly. He knew someone was coming that was going to fix this situation and make it permanent, but he didn't quite get it. And we have the privilege of looking back and knowing exactly what God did and how he did it through the work of Christ. That's a huge privilege and one we should never take for granted. And the fact is that every single piece of the tabernacle, everything the Israelites would have looked at, whether they realized it or not, was pointing to the one who it was always all about. And we can't miss it in our own life either. We've got to make sure that we understand that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Let's write it that way for our second point. We need to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Well, exactly as promised, God sent his son to come and live on earth, to tabernacle with people. We know that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And I love the way it is stated in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. God didn't waste any words describing exactly why this was the case. All of this was done to fulfill everything the prophets, that would have included Moses, had said would happen. Jesus was the fulfillment of every word that every prophet had ever spoken. He was the fulfillment of all the good things that were coming. 
John said it best in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Ladies, the ark was just a symbol. It was meant to point to the one who would come and put his presence with his people permanently. The tabernacle itself, the tent itself was just a symbol pointing to the one who would come and dwell with his people. It was always about Christ. It always was and it always will be. The gospels, we know, are the written record of the life and the ministry of Christ. And I love that as Jesus lived and fulfilled the work that he had to do, he made direct references to the law, to this tabernacle, in correlation to himself. He made it crystal clear from his own mouth that he was the one who was fulfilling every word the prophets ever said, every single thing the tabernacle pointed to. He owned it. He said it was all about me. And I think it would be really helpful for us to really look at some of these passages and just see the way Jesus uh, fulfilled that with his own mouth. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. The immediate context here is that Jesus had just performed one of his most famous miracles. He fed 5,000 men, besides women and children, with a little boy's lunch. And they had 12 baskets of leftovers, and the people went wild. This was amazing. In a time when food was hard to come by, they all ate and were full. I don't even know if they ever maybe even experienced what a full belly was like, but they did that day, listening to Jesus. And so as the text said, Jesus left he journeyed, and then the next day, he actually came back to that same spot where the miracle had taken place. And as you can imagine, crowds from all over the place running came to see him there because they wanted to see that and also probably to get a meal themselves. And Jesus, I love that, he, he calls their bluff. Look at John 6, verses 26. Then Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God has set his seal. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers? They ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he, Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Does that sound kind of familiar? Jesus made a direct reference to himself as being bread that came down from heaven. He was telling them, just like the symbol of the bread you see in the temple is supposed to remind you of that bread that came down from heaven, that if it didn't actually rain down from heaven, you would have starved and died just like you saw that reminder and remember to thank God for his provision for your life, I'm the real bread. You need me to live forever. 
Jesus' audience would have understood exactly the correlation he was making because those cities on the shore of the sea where he was teaching were actually the hub of rabbinic Judaism in the whole area. They would have been very familiar with the items in the temple and what they were meant to symbolize. They probably would have got it. The table of bread, it was just the shadow, just the clue pointing to the fulfillment that Christ would be. And I love that he doesn't stop there. Flip a few pages ahead in John to chapter 8. John chapter 8. We see that Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles. And look what he says in verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think for a minute about the big deal this is, because look at verse 20. He said that in the temple. Think about that for a minute. The temple was the tabernacle all grown up, so to speak. It had real walls. It wasn't a tent anymore, but it was still the place where God was considered to have met with his people. It still had the Holy of Holies, still had the most holy place. There still would have been a lampstand in there. And standing there where that lampstand would have been housed, you hear Jesus raising his voice and yelling to the people around him, I'm the light of the world. That's me. That thing that you need to remember, he's right here in front of you. Just like the lampstand was to give light to the people in the temple and show them that God was with them, so Jesus, in his own voice, calls out to the people around them and says, here I am, right here with you. And if you want to see and not lose your step, if you want to trip and not fall in the darkness, you need me. The lampstand was always meant to be the symbol, just the shadow. Christ was the fulfillment. It's easy for us to recognize this now, isn't it? We look back and we see, oh, that makes so much sense. But for Israel, it really was just a shadow. They could not tell what they were looking at. It must have been hard. And what they didn't realize, that this worship that they were learning way back when the tabernacle was first being built, all of that worship they were learning, even the Exodus itself, God pulling them out of slavery in a miraculous way. All of that was meant to point to the thing that was coming, the thing they didn't quite see yet. It's not that the Exodus wasn't miraculous, but it had nothing on what God was going to do next. The fact that God was going to provide atonement for them forever would far outshadow anything that they had seen. And that is the biggest deal of all, isn't it? That Jesus is the atonement for our sin. And we see that in the altar of the courtyard. Jesus fulfilled that crystal clearly because it was his bodily sacrifice that fulfilled the law's requirements for sin. I love how Matthew records it. That the second he died, that thick veil, over a foot thick, I believe, was shred in half, top to bottom. No more separation between the most holy place and the holy place. Christ had done it. He had made direct access to God because he paid the debt that our sin owed he removed the barrier that our sin created. He made it so we would be justified before God. Ladies, the sacrifice of animals was always meant to be temporary. It was never the permanent solution. It wasn't the thing that God really wanted to last forever. It was always meant to be a vivid, gory, awful reminder that every time they would look at that animal and they'd see the blood draining down the side of this beautiful bronze altar, they would remember, my sin did that. My sin did that. But Hebrews 10.3 said that these sacrifices were not to be permanent because it was the will of God to do something so much more permanent. 
Hebrews 10, 10 through 14 says this. And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Ladies, that's where he is now, at the right hand of God. He has done it. That altar, that bloody bronze altar, it was only ever meant to be a shadow, just a symbol. Christ was the true form. He's the one who could do it permanently. I love how one scholar said this. The Israelites had genuine communion with God when they responded to what he was saying in the tabernacle. And they trusted in the Messiah that was to come without knowing all the details of how that fulfillment would finally come. And so they were saved and they received forgiveness even before Messiah came. The animal sacrifices in themselves did not bring forgiveness, but Christ did as he met with them there through the symbolism. Isn't that sweet? What they saw dimly, ladies, we now see crystal clearly looking at Christ. And there should be nothing more special, nothing more beautiful. There should be no greater treasure than that truth right there. That's it. Summed up beautifully in Colossians 2, 13. And you, you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Through Christ, we have forgiveness, we are made right with God, and his righteousness is imputed to us. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing we could do to earn it. It was given to us at a pretty high price. And that should change absolutely everything. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Ladies, everything, every clue, everything along the way was always pointing to this reality. And we have to actually see ourselves in light of it, our life is no longer about us. It's no longer about the things we see around us. It's no longer about the things we want or hope or dream or desire. All of it now is forever centered on one person, Christ. You need to see your life as hidden with Christ. Let's write it that way for our final point. See your life as hidden with Christ. I saw online recently um, this sweet military wife. She's really young. I think she's in her young 20s. Um, just married, talking about what it's like to be married to someone who gets stationed all over the place from base to base and, um, and how it's kind of a bummer. She wants to decorate her house and use all that pointless china that she's never going to use that she registered for in her wedding. And, um, 
But she said as tough as it was, there was one thing that she found that really helped her keep her eyes where they needed to be, to get through it, just remembering this is temporary. And so the one decoration for her house that she put up everywhere they moved was a big sign that said, home is where my husband is. Isn't that sweet? That lady had the right idea. Home is where your husband is. For us, that's what we should think about Christ. Home, that's where he is. Home is where Christ is. This life is not everything. There's so much more going on, and sometimes it's so easy to forget that. We can forget that our Christian life sometimes is a little like something that's hidden in plain sight. We're here, but we're kind of not. It's home, but not. Our home is with Christ, and at the moment of conversion, we're not ushered into glory. We have to stay here a little while, but our heart is with him. That's where our treasure is. That's where he is. That's what we love. And because of Christ... Everything now in our life is wrapped up in him. One day we're going to be with him. It should be what we think about, what we dream of, what we want. And that mystery is at work in us right now. Even though we can't quite see it, it's not fully realized, we know that that is, in fact, what will happen in the future. It's easy for us to get discouraged or feel disconnected or apathetic, but when that happens, we've got to encourage each other to remember the truth that our life in Christ starts now. We no longer have a tabernacle. We don't have a tent where we are supposed to go and find God and worship him there because we have something even better than we could have ever have asked for. God himself has given us his spirit to stay with us directly, permanently, forever. Jesus even said, it's better when I go because you're going to have the helper with you forever. He literally takes up residence and stays with you. That's amazing. And more than that, Jesus continues to provide for us he told us plainly that he wants us to feed on him. We need him. We need his words. And his continual provision for our spiritual sustenance comes through his word. We have it all written down. We've got it bound. We've got it right in front of us. The scripture is the thing we need to survive. And Jesus even said that we need to live not by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ladies, we have it. We have it in writing. We have it at our fingertips. But how many of us really actually hunger for it, want it, crave it? We need to make sure that we're not dismissing the fact that God has given us everything we need and he's provided every single thing we need for our spiritual lives. It's right there in front of us. It's the word of God that feeds our souls, that teaches us of Christ, the one we love. And more than that, it's the word of God that lights up the way to show us exactly what we need to do so that we actually know how to please God and can be successful in it. Psalm 119, 105 says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He continues to be what we need. He continues to be the light that we need. He has called us out of spiritual darkness. He shows us how to live. His spirit never leaves us. He lights up our path. He makes it actually possible for us to live and please him. Everything was always about him. That amazing work that they never would have been able to wrap their minds around if they had even had the chance to. It was always pointing to that work, the work that you and I are experiencing now. These were always just shadows, symbols, things pointing to the good things that were coming. And now, ladies, we know exactly what the true form of them were. Christ. He's the true form. So I guess the question is then, what now? How do we respond now? What does God want from us now? 
We're not offering sacrifices in the temple. Our worship looks a little different. What do we do? Well, first of all, I think we have to really figure out, we've got to assess where we are. For some of us, we've heard Bible stories our whole life, including this one, the story of the Exodus, and God made the tabernacle, and we don't really think much of it because really we don't care. Maybe the extent of our relationship with God is mental assent. We like knowing the facts, but that's kind of about it. Our life doesn't really show anything different as a result of it. Or maybe we've got a leg in each door. Maybe we believe in God, we love Christ, we want to be a Christian, but that idea of giving up the rights to yourself, as Elizabeth Elliot has said, that idea is really hard for us. Maybe we're okay with him calling the shots in some areas of our life, but not all. Not who we'll date, not where we'll work or where we'll live. There are limits to what we will put under the feet of Christ and surrender to his control. Or maybe, maybe you've been at this a long time, but you've forgotten what it was in the first place that compelled you to serve. You forgot why you came to Christ. You've lost your first love. And now, serving him is something that you do to check a box. It's something that you do for you, and it's not something that you do for him. Ladies, we have to remember Every time we feel disconnected, every time we feel like we're just going through the motions or we don't really care, we've got to fight and remember what we have in Christ. This is actually real. This isn't a religion to make yourself feel better. It's not to help your life be more orderly. This is the redemption planned by Yahweh himself before the creation of the world, fulfilled in Christ and offered to us now. It's always been about him. And what he's asking from us is not mental assent, It's not half-hearted pursuit. It's all out, full-on, wholesale trade, all of you for all of him forever. Romans 12.1 says this. This is how we worship God now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is it he wants from you? Everything. Every single thing, your whole life, committed to and ordered by God, no turning back, forever. Just that, everything. (laughs) So we have to ask ourselves: when we take a look at our life honestly, is our worship actually pleasing to him? Is it? Does he have everything? Have we really given up the rights to ourself? Or are we falling into the routine? Our priorities, are they ordered by him? Is how you spend your time or your money or what you choose to do and when you'll do it, is that really actually ordered by him? Or does he get thrown in there somewhere? Maybe this means it's time to stop making excuses about the DBR. Maybe it's time to stop making excuses about why we don't have time to study the the word of God. Maybe it's time to say yes to the serving post that you've been putting off. Maybe it's time to say yes to being baptized. It doesn't really matter what it is. We all have different things that we know we need to fully surrender and give to the Lord. But whatever it is, do it. Surrender it. Get rid of it. Let every single part of your life be firmly under the feet of Christ where it belongs. There shouldn't be an area that's hard to tell if it's really surrendered. And ladies, I get, I get that it's hard, I do. But we have to remember, when we first came to Christ, we knew what it meant. We knew what it cost. We got that full, 
whole trade idea. We really are in Christ and we're real Christians. We remember that. He now owns the rights to your whole life. You're all for him. And I know that can be hard sometimes, especially when we feel disconnected. It's been 2,000 years since Christ was here. And sometimes it's hard because all we can see is our life right here, right now. And that's why you have to fight to remember that your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where your life is. He is your life. You have him. You have him. And that's all you need. You know, every year, um, as dumb as it is, at our Easter egg hunts, we would all come back in the house, and we'd sit there, and we'd count our eggs, and for me, it didn't take long, and we would all start sharing stories about the hunt, and, you know, I could still hear my brother talking about, like, oh, he had an army crawl underneath the base of the house, and they had to stand on each other's shoulders to get that egg up high. I was like, sure you did. And as they were all swapping stories, talking about it, you know, and counting all their dollar bills that I didn't have, there was always a part of me that felt a little left out, a little jealous, because I could never find any eggs. But deep down, I knew why. I can still picture them running as fast as they could down that hill in a forest. Sketchy. I had no interest in running down a hill, tripping and falling, getting hurt, getting dirty. And they didn't think about the trek back up. I did. I knew it was going to be much easier in the front yard, and I would just get all those easy ones, and it would be great. But you know what? I didn't realize until it was too late that I missed it. Every year we'd sit around and we'd swap stories about how fun it was, how awesome it was. It was hard and there's broken toes and, and I was never really actually a part, it, a part of it. I had three eggs, sure. I had the Easter basket. I was part of the hunt. But I missed out because I wasn't all in. I didn't really care enough to try. Ladies, one day you are going to stand before King Jesus, exalted and awesome. And all of these things that he's given as clues along the way from eternity past, even in his life and the flesh, even now through his word, he wants you to see him for what he is. Because next time he comes, it's not to wear a crown of thorns. It's going to be a little different. You're going to see the exalted King Jesus and you will give an account to him. Jude 5 reminds us very pointedly that it was Jesus who saved the people from Egypt. He led them out. And what else did he do? And afterwards, he destroyed those who did not believe. We, we will give an answer to him, to him. So we need to make sure that that day that we see him is one where we don't have any regrets, not a one. We're not going to wish we would have worked harder. We're not going to wish we'd have really been all in. We're not going to wish there was a few things we kept to ourselves instead of putting them all under his feet. You're all in or you're all out. And you want to give him everything. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. All of this, all of this, the redemption from time past for forever has always been all about him. So ladies, serve him, live for him. Consider yourself the living, walking, breathing sacrifice that you will offer back to God. Give him everything. You won't ever regret it. Love the one it's always been all about. Let's pray. Lord God, there is no one like you. Like Moses said, like David said, like so many people have said in scripture, what kind of God is this who takes a people and claims them for himself? 
of people who complain, who are hard to lead, who don't get it, who can't see what's right in front of their faces, Lord. Thank you for being the God who has decided to dwell with his people forever and actually making it possible because you knew we couldn't do it. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for my sin, Lord, for all of our sin. God, I pray that you would help us all to really understand that it always has been about you and to respond like we should by sacrificing all of ourselves back to you, the only one who saves, the only one who matters, God. Let us see our life as being about when we're with you. It's hidden with you, God. That's what matters. Keep our hearts fixed on you, God. Keep our affections wrapped all around you, Lord. Keep our, our minds steady. Let us actually please you, worship you, live for you, and have no regrets the day we see you face to face. I love you, King Jesus, and I'm excited to see you take the throne. In your name, amen. If you're